Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we're going to be talking to my favorite centrist YouTubers, Sitch and Adam. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to be debating who is more authoritarian, the woke or the anti-woke. So that should be a fun back and forth, an interesting conversation. But before we get to that, there's quite a few uh, important pieces of news that I haven't had the ability to get to yet on my show. So we wanted to discuss them here. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff that's unfolding. So the first thing we'll start with is Hunter Biden appeared in court yesterday. It was supposed to be sort of like a rubber stamp of the plea deal that he had struck with the government, sort of like what I would describe and many have described as effectively a sweetheart deal on some tax fraud that also would give him immunity on a variety of other charges. So, but that, and it was gun related too, right? Wasn't gun related too. So exactly how b widespread the immunity was became uh, very quickly a point of contention. The government said uh, it applies to drug charges, gun charges, and tax charges. It does not apply to FARA charges, which is like being an unregistered foreign lobbyist, basically. The Hunter Biden team apparently thought that it did apply to that. And they said effectively, like, well, if it doesn't include that, then there's no deal. There was a recess. It was sort of like chaos. They're trying to figure out what does this apply to? What does it not? And, you know, from my perspective, it would be crazy to say that all charges for any foreign corrupt dealings are just off the table based on this one sweetheart deal. So the first blow for the Hunter Biden team came. They basically had to accept the government's position that, yes, he could face charges in the future over any sort of like foreign corruption or lobbying as a foreign agent. So that was piece number one that caused initial chaos. And the other piece that was important there is there'd been some question over whether or not the government was finished with their investigations into Hunter Biden. There'd been some uh, discrepancies in what was uh, reported in the press about that. And this also made clear that, no, the investigation does continue. He could face additional charges. Obviously bad for him. Obviously bad for the president. So that was number one. Number two, Hunter ended up, he, the expectation was he's going to plead guilty. He's got this plea deal. That was going to be end of story. Well, he ended up having to plead not guilty because the judge is not sure she's even going to accept this deal. It has a few pieces that she describes as atypical that she feels, um, you know, uh, may not even be constitutional. We should point out it's a Trump appointed judge. It is a Trump appointed judge um, that she feels may not be constitutional. And so at the end of yesterday, this is this is actually not resolved. And she wants to take some time to review what exactly is in the plea deal um, and for the two sides to, to come together and explain better to her what's in the plea deal and what's then expected of her. So it's a bit up in the air whether this deal is even going to work out at all. So my understanding of the original deal that was made and the mm -hmm. original charges that were brought up is that so there were tax charges. Yeah. But he also paid all the money back. So if anything is rare in the other direction that he actually ended up paying, but they were still going to charge him. So you could actually make the argument it's not favoritism. It's quite the opposite. It's to maintain this political veneer of like, we're definitely going after the bad guys. It they were depends. like, we're still going to charge you over that. It depends because um, it depends on whether you believe the IRS whistleblowers that came forward and said, we actually found more. We actually recommended stiffer charges and we were sort of stymied in a political way in our attempt to, you know, we put forward a memo saying we thought that these charges should have been higher, that this ordinarily is what we would have charged with this set of circumstances, but we were sort of, you know, um, the kibosh was put on that. And so these lesser charges and this lesser deal is what came to pass. But then you get to the gun charges yeah. and the gun charges, correct me if I'm wrong, it had something to do. There's some sort of law where it is 
because he's either a drug addict or he has severe mental health issues that he was restricted from being able to own a gun. You can't be on drugs and having the gun. Right. Basically. And so they did a charge over that. Um, I mean, overall, I'm more with the judge because the judge is saying, look, maybe we can grant immunity for future tax cases or drug related cases or maybe even gun related charges. But we're in no position to just like swat aside all the potential other investigations on being a foreign agent, corruption related stuff. There's a million investigations into you and they're currently ongoing. I mean, there's a congressional inquiry into him. So on that front, we can't really give uh, we don't have the ability or the leeway to even say, OK, you're you're good to go on that front, too. So I'm more with the judge on that for sure. Um, but I will say, and we could talk about the Biden issue, too, here, because they're potentially the Republicans are are already talking about Kevin McCarthy is well, we're going to impeach Biden. And some of this stuff is sort of related to what we're discussing here. Uh, I think the Republicans have messed up by overreaching when it comes to porn stuff, overreaching when it comes to drug stuff, uh, sex stuff. They sort of drag in a lot of stuff about his messy personal life, like Marjorie Taylor Greene in the committee hearing holding up like pictures of Hunter Biden's cock for the world to see and acting like this is some sort of, you know, bombshell against him or whatever. If anything, that makes people feel like sympathy, like Jesus, man, like this is not in the realm, like corruption's in the realm of reasonable discussion and what you should go after. This is not in the realm of it. Um, So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of it from here, but they definitely shouldn't close the door on all potential corruption stuff because of these charges. And it's kind of funny to me that he felt entitled enough to act like, no, I have corruption from those things, too. Yeah, they they apparently were under the understanding that they also had immunity for the Farah violations. Now, that part they've already lost on. It's done that they do not have immunity on the the Farrah piece of this. There's an investigation that is continuing. That's that ship has sailed. Now, the question is over some of these more technical details of the plea deal that the judge felt were very unusual and that she wanted to take more time to study. I think specifically with regard to um, the tax piece of this. So that's what's still hanging out there is whether this judge is going to accept this plea deal at all. So really bad day for Hunter Biden in court because already he's had to suffer this loss of no, no, you still are in trouble for potential fair violations. That's still out there. And we're not even sure that this plea deal is going to go through whatsoever. Now, tell me about the Biden side of it. Tell me about what Kevin McCarthy is considering impeaching Biden over vis-a-vis this stuff. Well, it's very they don't really have like a full case together. <laughs> they don't really know is the answer. But you have a lot of Freedom Caucus, harder right members of the caucus who the day that they were so I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think the day she was sworn in for this session was like, it's time to. Know, there were like Biden. a dozen attempts, but they were all over. Stupid right. Stuff. And, and the idea is basically corruption. Now, the things they point to are not smoking guns. They have this uncorroborated intelligence report, right, which just means someone told the intelligence agencies, like, I have these tapes of Joe Biden saying X and Y and Z, but these apparently have been investigated and they haven't been able to prove them out. So there's that. There's um, some of the, you know, some of the things that come out of the text messages, like 10% for the big guy. There's that sort of stuff. So there's that one. My understanding was proven to be a total fake. It was manipulated. It wasn't real. 
Well, so there's these pieces that they believe that are hanging out there, but do they have an actual, like, this is the thing, this is what we're going forward with? No. Um, where McCarthy is under pressure is you've got these competing priorities. The harder right people are like, yes, we want to do impeachment. The There's a number of members who are representing Biden districts who are, of course, up for re-election um, in the next election cycle and who are very uncomfortable moving forward with impeachment. So he's trying to balance that by right now saying, basically, we may have an impeachment inquiry, which is different from an impeachment. Um, but uh, if I but had that's to still guess, a big step, that's they've never considered it for any of the other things that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert brought up. They basically were like, you know, no, we're not going to do it over withdrawal from Afghanistan or the border being open or whatever other right. nonsense they put. So this is one if they're actually considering it, if they're going to do an inquiry. I find that very interesting. It's yeah, there's, I think there's, other. there's a lot of energy building on the right around this um, because, you know, they they have sold the evidence against Joe as being a lot more concrete than it actually is. And, you know, I think it's pretty clear that he probably lied about having no conversation with, with Hunter about his business dealings. I think it's disgusting that Hunter Biden routinely traded on the Biden name to enrich himself um, with these shady business dealings. But that's provable, though. They should put Hunter in jail for that. Right. Like that's not illegal. I mean, it should be illegal, but I don't think it is. You don't think there were lines that were crossed that were legal lines with Hunter Biden's corrupt foreign dealings? I think probably the lines that were crossed were like the I didn't register as a foreign lobbyist. But that that, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Get Al Capone on tax evasion, whatever you got to do. Right. You you get a couple of years out of that. No. Yeah. I I don't know what the sentencing guidelines are. But yeah, I think I think that piece is probably over the line. But in terms of just trading on the Biden name, unfortunately, that's not illegal. You remember Michael? Flynn. Yeah, of course. He got caught on that exact same thing. He didn't register as a foreign agent when Turkey, when Turkey was paying him, right. and he was sentenced to prison. I don't know if he actually spent any time in there. I don't know if, you know, something happened where Trump pardoned him. I don't know. I don't I, I forget Trump the specific. pardoned him, didn't he? I forget the specifics, so I really, I, I don't know. But that was something that he was found guilty of is you were working as a foreign agent for Turkey and not registering as it. You were lobbying on behalf of Turkey, getting a lot of money from them, and you didn't register as it. So yeah, I would get Hunter Biden on that. In terms of the Joe Biden portion, I, I mean, I think they might have a hard time proving it. Um, I'm sort of agnostic on the extent of how far it went. I wouldn't be surprised either way. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, to lay the precedent of like we're going to go after a president for corruption, that's one that I'm like yummy in my tummy. Yeah. Because for the love of God, if you guys are going after Joe Biden, you should have went after Donald Trump ten times harder because yeah. his corruption was even more brazen. You put your family members in your own administration. Jared Kushner took two billion dollars from Saudi Arabia and was doing you know special sweetheart things for them the entire time. Mm-hmm. You had he took millions of dollars from Israeli banks and of course. The U.S. government is cucked to both Saudi Arabia and Israel. Mm-hmm. The list goes on and on. Jared and Ivanka made $600 million when they were in office. Lord only knows what the hell Donald Trump Jr. was up to. Yeah. So he got all these things. Trump himself with the money he takes from all these different... He's, he's doing a deal with the government of Oman right now as he's running for president, which is the clearest violation of the Emoluments Clause I've ever seen in my life. So if they want to open the door to going after presidents for corruption, I'm your huckleberry. I'd love it. Go yeah. right ahead. But then you got to prove it. You know, you got to prove it like it's a court of law. And- yeah, it's got to be it's got to be clear cut. And I don't think they quite have that nailed yet. I mean, the, the thing that's interesting to me is I, I do think part of why Democrats didn't go after Trump on his corruption is because they know how they have their own skeletons yes, there. So exactly. they're like, mm, let's talk about the Ukrainian phone call. Yes. Right. There's the that, perfect phone call. Right. That perfect. we can mm-hmm. that we can work with. Let's talk about Russia. That, you know, we feel like we we have better and a better angle there and cleaner hands because on corruption, you start to yeah. look at, you know, stock trades or what God knows. Right. So the thing about Republicans, I do feel like they're a little bit more shameless 
Like they don't see oh, yeah, they the don't, hypocrisy. They don't care about Talking about Republican elites. Like they don't see the hypocrisy nope. that of course their guy is knee deep. I mean, the amount of Saudi money he's taking right now through Live Golf and all this stuff and Kushner is getting $2 billion deals from Saudi Arabia, et cetera. They don't even think about, hey, what about if we go through with this, when our guy gets back in, aren't they going to turn around and be like, hey, corrupt They're not playing chess. They're, 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 they're not, not playing chess or checkers. Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're just, playing nothing. There just is a greater level of shamelessness. But like you, if we want to set the precedent that like we actually care about corruption or going to go after presidents for it, then hey, let's do it. Uh, listen, when we do it, it's okay. When they do it, it's not okay. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's what they honestly believe. Yeah. I mean, apparently, I'm sure there's all kinds of rationalizations or whatever, but I don't can't possibly articulate what they really are. Yeah. That's all. So while all of that was happening yesterday, there was a, another big moment unfolding on Capitol Hill, which is Senator Mitch McConnell, who happens to be 81 years old and has suffered some, uh, you know, difficult health situations in recent months and years, was giving a press conference. He was speaking and then the words start to get a little slurred. And then he just comes to a total stop, totally freezes mid-sentence and just stares blankly at the camera for 15 seconds, seemingly unable to formulate any further words. Let's take a look at what that looked like. A partisan cooperation and a string of uh, Okay, anything else you want to say? I'm sure let's go back to your office. Okay. Do you want to say anything else to the press? So what you see there at the end is, uh, I think that's Senator Barrasso who comes over and says, hey, Mitch, do you have anything else you want to say to the press or should we go back to your office? And then he proceeds to escort Mitch McConnell off the screen. Look, I can't say shit. I've done that exact same thing before. <laughs> I have absolutely. No, you haven't. Yes, I was. First of all, I've done my show like more times than I can count, and there was definitely. I remember one time in particular, but there's probably more that I was mid-sentence in the middle of a show, and one of my lights that was on me went out, mm -hmm. and it like flashed, and then I did exactly that. I was like, and that's what. <laughs> did someone have to escort you off though? And literally, no, nobody had to escort <laughs> me off, but I cut to break. I froze for like 15 seconds, and I cut to break. And then you could ask Lilith this. So you, uh, she probably remembers it. And everybody was laughing in the chat. And I was like, yeah, this is funny. It's like, fuck, my brain doesn't work. God damn it. So, like, part of me feels really, really bad for him over this. Yeah. But the other part, look, the, uh, the obvious point to make is, Jesus Christ, all of our leaders are, like, so 412 years old. Yeah. I mean, Diane Feinstein is going, going gonzo. Her brain is not on this planet. It's yeah, on Neptune she right now. Know where she, is. she doesn't know where she is. They're propping her up like a corpse, like it's weekend at Bernie's. That's sad. Mitch McConnell, this going on. Yeah. Well, and we've I mean, learned we've learned more. Biden. We've learned more too since this happened. First, let me show you. So he did come back a couple minutes later, which to me is also crazy. He's going like, this man should be in the hospital. Like, if this was your mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, whatever, and they just froze. I mean, this could be a stroke. It could be a siege. It could be. Something I didn't think it was that to be honest. Yeah. You didn't think so. I no. stroke was immediately what came to mind for me. If this was my one of my parents, I would have them in the emergency room ASAP. So he comes back a couple minutes later and it's like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> no problem here. Let's take a listen to what they had to say. Could you address what happened at the start of the press conference and was related to your injury from earlier this year where you suffered a concussion? Is that no, I'm I'm fine. 
fine. You're fully able to yeah. do your job. Yeah. So he had suffered a concussion previously, is what uh, Manu Raji, the CNN reporter, is referring multiple to Multiple ones. Multiple ones. Suffered a concussion recently, and then in, on July 14th, so we're talking about in the last couple of weeks, he apparently had another fall. He fell twice coming off a plane. At the airport. Um, and, you know, this is a man who's 81 years old, and uh, those sort of concussions, they can have long-term implications even in a young person, so... That's the state of affairs. Yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's just sad, right? It's just a sad situation. Um, I don't have many jokes to make on this one. I just feel like it's not only the right thing for the country to sort of have some younger people in there, right? Yeah. It's also better for these. I mean, he should be laying on a beach sipping a mojito right well, now. I mean, he should here, be chilling. I mean, here's where I, you know, go beyond just like sympathy for him, which is that you're a, in a very powerful position, just like Dianne Feinstein, just like Joseph Robinette Biden. And people deserve some transparency around whether or not you are actually in condition to do the job. And so we come to find out now he's, you know, just had these falls and he's being pushed around the Capitol in a wheelchair oftentimes. And oh, McConnell they, is? I didn't know that. Yeah, that just came out this morning as well. And, uh, you know, they won't they he refused to say whether he saw a doctor after this incident. He won't say what actually the hell happened and explains that, you know, total brain freeze for 15 seconds where he has to be let off by a colleague. And I think at the very, you know, people can make up their, they can take that information, make up their minds over whether they still want this person in power, but they deserve the information. Meanwhile, I don't, you probably saw the report about uh, Biden's people and how they're really, you know, going all out to make sure to hide from the public his signs of aging and all the length, all the length that they're going to, to try to make sure that the public doesn't see what's going on there. And of course, refusing to debate so that people can't assess for themselves whether this person is up to the job. Same thing with Dianne Feinstein. Last time around, she, you know, when she had a competitor, she wouldn't debate. And so people didn't have a chance to see for themselves. This person is have, is declining and is really not here. And if we're voting for her, what we're really voting for is the staff that runs her office to be telling her what to do and taking the votes in her stead. So that's where I think it goes beyond just like this man should be, you know, getting a checkup and we should be concerned. About so him. I wouldn't be in favor of a law that like, oh, when you get over a certain age, you're kicked out. No, government. I wouldn't. Either. I wouldn't be in favor of that. Um, I would be in favor, number one, of him voluntarily stepping down. Diane Feinstein voluntarily stepping down. I would uh, highly encourage that to happen, sort of like how Barack Obama encouraged uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to step down, and she didn't because mm -hmm. she's incredibly selfish and narcissistic. That's a good point. Um, but the other thing is, what I would be in favor of, in terms of like, here's an avenue where maybe we could address this, is some sort of a procedure for a no confidence vote where they're effectively, if it's democratically decided, told, okay, it's time for you to go. Yeah. Because I do think, even with like, you know, powerhouse like Dianne Feinstein, who's been in office forever, at a certain point, if the voters know all the facts, they're going to go, hmm. Can't be doing this. Yeah. Can't be doing this. I mean, she shouldn't be serving out the rest of this term. She shouldn't have run for office this time. And so far, she's absolutely dedicated to it. And Nancy Pelosi is backing her up for her own reasons, which is, in my opinion, disgusting because she thinks Adam Schiff will win. Adam yep. Schiff will mm -hmm. win. But if uh, Dianne Feinstein retires and new some will down, pick a woman. Newsom probably pick, Barbara Lee, possibly Barbara Lee. And then, you know, that gives her a leg up in the contest and Nancy Pelosi won't have her little hand chosen pick in there. And so disgustingly, because you were certainly not looking out for the interests of this person, Diane Feinstein, that you claim to care about. I mean, it can't be good for her to be in this job at this point. Um, but, you know, she is backing her up and making sure, pushing her across the finish line, trying to get her to the next cycle. Deeply cynical. Yeah, indeed.
The other thing that was going on in Capitol Hill yesterday was pretty wild set of hearings into whatever the hell has been going on with these uh, UFOs or UAPs, whatever you want to call them. Uh, we've all seen probably these images and videos of these objects that they still have not been able to explain what they are, where they came from, how they're able to move and operate in the way that they do. And uh, one of the star witnesses yesterday was uh, a man named David Grush, who you know served a lot of years in um, in government and has come forward as a whistleblower, not saying that he has direct knowledge of some pretty wild secret government programs to recover alien craft that, you know, I'll show you some of the revelations that allegations that he made yesterday, but that he's, he says he was sort of read into these things that he knew people directly that were involved in them. So he is recounting what he knows uh, allegedly of these programs. So um, let's take a look. This was one of the probably more shocking moments where he says that the U.S. government is in possession of UFOs and non-human biologics. Let's take a listen. If you believe we have crashed craft, uh, stated earlier, do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries. Yeah. Um, were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. So non-human biologics, that's pretty uh, remarkable. We also had another moment where he confirms, and again, this is all under oath, that UFOs and the U.S. government have physically injured multiple colleagues of his. Let's take a listen to that. At one point, you had said that there, 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 there uh, has been harmful activity or aggressive activity. Has any of the activity um, been aggressive, been um, hostile in your reports? Uh, I know of multiple colleagues of mine that got physically injured. And uh, the activity, and I got to by by UAPs or by by people within the, the federal government. Both. Okay, yeah. so yeah. there has been activity by by alien or non non human technology and or beings that has caused harm to humans. Uh, I can't get into the specifics in a, an open environment, but at least the activity that I personally witnessed, and I have to be very careful here, because uh, you don't, you know, they tell you never to acknowledge tradecraft, right? So what I personally witnessed myself and my wife was very disturbing. And then the last one that I will share with you is he also alleges that the U.S. government has known about non-human intelligence since roughly the 1930s and that there has been effectively a global cover-up of these phenomena. Let's take a listen to that. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis discussed publicly uh, previously, 1930s. So there you go. Those were some of the key moments, Kyle. And just so people know, David Grush, um, U.S. Air Force officer and former intelligence officer. So he says he was made aware of these programs, but he was not directly involved with them. Okay. So this is the first time I saw those videos. Mm -hmm. As I know, Twitter was uh, ablaze yesterday yep. with uh, all these, all this talk. Um, so first of all, just to temper everybody a little bit here, uh, this guy also says has said UFOs come from another dimension, and he says they were covered up by Mussolini and the Vatican. So uh, I just want to, 
warn everybody, just because somebody is wearing a, a suit and tie and talks really official doesn't necessarily mean you take everything they say at face value. Um, I mean, look, the bottom line is this. You claim all these things. These are big things to claim. Mm -hmm. Show the fucking evidence. We could talk all day long. We could sit here and talk all day long. If you're not showing me the evidence, then what do you want me to do? The best position, even if I'm being as most kind as possible to these people, is to say, I'm agnostic. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, my real default position is like, you're full of shit until you prove otherwise. But if I'm being kind, I say, I don't know. Like, okay, I just don't know. Show me what you got. We can't just talk about this. Like, either these things that we're talking about here, UFOs, either they have some sort of natural origin, you know, whatever, a test from a military base where the mm -hmm. thing goes off track, crash, whatever. Right. Either it's a natural origin, it's real as in, like, we genuinely don't know where the hell it came from, might be non-human, mm -hmm. or it's a total hoax. Right. Or it could just be totally faked by people effectively like pranking us or playing an elaborate scheme or whatever. Right. Yeah. Those are the options. Given the amount of evidence we have right now, I don't know how anybody can say anything other than either I'm not buying it or I just don't know. You got to show me more. Yeah. But I see a lot of like, oh, no, that, that's all, it's over. It's over. And, you know, um, somebody made a good point on Twitter that I wanted to bring up here. Uh, U.S. Space Force, it start it. It started with a much lower budget. Now the budget hit $30 billion in a 2024 proposal. And I'm not going full conspiratorial, like the whole reason for these hearings is to like give an argument to now we must beef up Space Force. But it certainly is convenient that like, you know, oh my God, we're fear-mongering over, oh, non-human uh, aircraft. Oh my God, they're here. It's crazy. Look at what's going on. It's proven, all this. And then it's like, okay, let's jack up the funding for U.S. Space Force. The reason I don't buy that particular conspiracy is that I just think that the military gets whatever money it wants whenever it wants. That's facts. And so I don't know that they would need to invent an elaborate UFO right. conspiracy yeah, true. True. And, and alleged government cover-up of said UFO conspiracy going back to the 1930s to get their budgets fattened because they just do that with ease all the time anyway. So that particular conspiracy I don't buy. I mean, I put myself in the camp of agnostic because on the one hand, you know, you hear these claims and you're like, Really? Global cover-up since the 1930s involving the Vatican and Mussolini and every U.S. president and Brazil and whatever other governments were involved in this. And we have no greater proof than, you know, this whistleblower who doesn't even have direct knowledge of the programs himself coming forward and saying what he says. And a part of me, too, is now what what they say is he's totally willing to uh, name names and tell more about you know <laughs> he said i can't in that right so he he what he says to in fairness is that he wants to do that but uh some of this information is classified it would have to be revealed in the skiffs and they asked for one of those skiffs the like special classified setting where you can do stuff like that and um the uh intelligence agencies were like no you can't have it. Okay, but the so, intelligence agency slapped that down, but then we have congressional freaking hearings on the topic? Yeah. Wouldn't they put the kibosh on that also if they were really working behind the scenes to stop all this stuff? Maybe, but I more think more air in it than anything else. Part of why members of Congress, and it is bipartisan, are pushing forward with this is because they also feel like some of their requests have been stonewalled. So they're like pissed off about they feel like there are things that are being kept from them. And so that's part of why there is this growing sense of like, all right, we're going to push for answers. We're going to put these people up there. We're going to push this thing forward and try to demand transparency. And again, there are members on both sides of the aisle that are interested in this. So um, anyway, on the one hand, I look at the claims. I'm like, I don't know. That's a lot to swallow. On the other hand, I look at the videos and the images that have been released that 
they still have no explanation for. They're always so goddamn grainy. But they have no explanation for a number of these videos. I mean, they did the whole this whole investigation report and they spun it to the New York Times of like, it's, you know, it's probably nothing, but we don't actually know what it is. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if you want us to totally rule this out, you got to have some kind of explanation for things moving in a way that defies our understanding of current technology and physics. You got to have some explanation for that for people to just completely dismiss it. But okay, but I agree but then when we get to the conclusion is where we depart. No explanation means there is no explanation. Everybody watching this goes, it's aliens for sure. And it's like, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And again, all, all I'm asking from this guy is evidence. Now he could say, oh my God, the deep state and men in black are preventing me from releasing any of this. He said humans got injured by aliens. We don't have some records from 1974 in Cleveland, Ohio, of some motherfucker going in there with a, a, a wound that was a uh, bright purple or something like <laughs> what are we talking about here bro it, it, it's a great old christopher hitchens quote extraordinary claims require extraordinary okay. evidence no absolutely. right so all i'm asking for everybody is there are two positions that i find acceptable i'm calling bullshit until i see more i accept that position mm -hmm. my actual position is i just don't know but you know you're going to need to come with a lot more than some dude in a suit and tie who's got a questionable history saying stuff in front of congress because you know what else was said in front of congress we had the whole Red Scare McCarthyite bullshit that unfolded in front, of, in front of Congress with all these guys in committee hearings wearing suits and ties and, I hear your neighbor is suspected of being a communist. <gasps> oh, oh, no! And they made a whole big dog and pony show about this is a very serious issue. It wasn't fucking serious. It wasn't. It wasn't. And this could fall in that same category. We just don't know yet. Red Scare, but for aliens. Correct. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, should we get to the uh, the interview? Yeah, let's do it. So time to talk to my favorite centrist YouTubers, Sitch and Adam. We're going to be debating who's more authoritarian, the woke or the anti-woke. Welcome, Sitch and Adam of the Sitch and Adam show, as I've already called you three times so far in our intro, <laughs> my favorite centrists. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> nice What's to up? meet you. How's it going? Good to be yeah, here. So we talked, We you guys were on the show, I don't know how long ago it was now, six months or something like that. And Crystal mm -hmm. wasn't here that episode. She's excited to be here this episode. So it's a... Uh, I was look. I was really looking forward to this. I find this conversation exciting, um, and I feel like it's rare that you can have like good faith disagreement with people who you know are coming from an honest place. Usually, um, this topic in particular is so nuclear red hot that it's impossible to like you know find some common ground on this stuff. So, uh, we wanted to discuss. Actually, before we get into the topic, I told Chris I was going to do this before. I know you guys are big Game of Thrones fans. I am like the number one Game of Thrones fan, so I yeah. wanted to I wanted to ask belatedly, you both yes. your favorite. Yeah, belatedly, I didn't see it when it first came out. I saw it later, which was good because I got to watch it all like in as you know one day after the next. I got to finish it pretty quickly. Um, favorite Game of Thrones character, Adam, you first. Ooh, that's a tough one. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm not the biggest Game of Thrones fan after all. <laughs> You give, watch us, the you whole, give us the a whole, few like, faves then. I watched watch the, the yeah, Ned, Ned too, Stark like in like a week. Ned Stark is obviously completely lovable, but I feel like he's the he's like the go-to that everybody loves. So It's like too just, obvious. Yeah, exactly. But Ned Stark is obviously lovable. Uh Sitch and I have talked uh extensively about Ned Stark and the the contradictions of Ned Stark in the terms of like selectorate theory and uh Dictator's Handbook and stuff. So I'll just go with Ned Stark, obviously. What do you think? Sitch, what do you think? Uh, well, if we're talking about the book, Jamie is clearly my favorite character. Mm. But in the show, he kind of sucks. He's very mm. different. On <laughs> uh, the show, uh, 
show Ned or Tyrion probably, but Book Jamie is the best character easily. Crystal, uh, I don't know if I ever asked you this question before. Who's your favorite? my favorite i i liked um i liked catlin a lot and i also liked uh Tyrion. i like Tyrion. you're a like lot. the one catlin fan by the way as well really <laughs> i don't catlin. like catlin i don't know she's very strong like she's a mom i don't know i related to her she also gets like everybody killed with her decisions <laughs> does she though because she's yes. the one who no but she told rob no, not to hey, marry not that fair. bitch yeah exactly yeah, she, wait, wait, she, she tells, she she's tells the reason rob ned went, to, went to right. king's landing ned wasn't gonna go to king's landing no 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 oh well, rob Rob screwed that up for himself. She was in there like, you know, at great personal cost to herself being like, this is a bad idea. And, you know, he's a prideful man and you're like screwing around with this is not a good idea. So this is all on Rob. I was under the impression. I Catelyn... blaming Catelyn no, for this I shit. Thought... Wait a second. I could have sworn in the show. Oh, my God. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Catelyn <laughs> got Ned to go to, to King's Landing. The Catelyn was the one like, you have to go. And he was like, fuck. Well, he's like, kind of have to go. Well, After he was told about John Aaron. Anyway, we're getting way deep in the weeds. Let me just give you guys my... So, first of all, I'm 100% yeah. with Adam. I have one in 1A. One is Ned. Two is actually Tywin Lannister. I think the acting job in the show from the character that played Tywin Lannister is fucking unbooked. Just yeah, like the best too. villain slash... Like, he's like a villain, but he's kind of not because you see his code. His code is like family-oriented and he sticks by it 100%, but that leads to very dark places, does the Red Wedding, etc. Anyway, we could probably talk about this for five hours, but let's go ahead and get to the main topic. <laughs> well, hold on, though. Uh, Sorry, let's, ahead, since we ahead. mentioned Barbie, who's your favorite Barbie oh, movie? Oh, <laughs> Ken, obviously. Ken, Ken. <laughs> yeah, it's like by a, by a mile. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't really like any of them to be honest with you. Wow. They all irritated me in different well, ways. But yeah, Ken was maybe the least irritating. Well, and I just I want you to know, movie, Crystal, that in the book, it's the roles between Cat and Ned are reversed. Ned wants to go to King's Landing, and Catelyn doesn't want him to oh, go to really? King's Landing. Yeah. So. We just started. Yeah, we just started. I don't remember that. I'll take your word for it. So, but, but... I could have just like gone over my head. Yeah. Um. All right. So let's get to the, to the main topic. That was fun. <laughs> we honestly could have scheduled a whole Game of Thrones thing. That would have been fun too. <laughs> we'll have to do that. All right, so well, Game of Thrones ties it ties into authoritarianism pretty well. Oh, that's actually, true. So. That's why I love it. Nice it's got segue. it's, it's yeah. rife with political themes. Uh, that's phenomenal. Of course. Um. So here's the question that we wanted to dig into: Who is more authoritarian? The woke or the anti-woke? And mm -hmm. I was going to give you my position. Chris will give you hers. You guys can lay out yours. But first, I'll just give you my definition of wokeness so you know, like, what I'm working off of here. I think there's one definition which is, has, like, a positive connotation. Then there's another which has a negative connotation. The positive one was, like, if you're woke, you're alert to injustice and trying to change it. The negative definition, I would say, is authoritarian in service of perceived social justice ends. And so typically when I use woke, I am typically using it more as a pejorative. I mean, people who are authoritarian in service of what they think are social justice ends. So uh, with that definition, I would claim today, my thesis is this. I think both sides are authoritarian. Many on both sides can be authoritarian, although you can be woke or anti-woke and not be authoritarian. But I'm more concerned about the anti-woke authoritarians because from my perspective, it manifests in legislation much more often, which directly impacts people. Whereas on the other side, I think that wokeness can be very authoritarian, but it usually manifests more through culture, which is bad, but I just don't think the stakes are as high. So I know that Sitch, for example, I know you like to focus more on the culture and not, not as much on the legislation, which might explain some of the disconnect here. But uh, tell me your thoughts on this. Uh, since I mentioned Sitch, Sitch, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on who's more authoritarian and why? Mm -hmm. Well, first I'll say, um... I like your definition of woke. 
uh, the one that I use is generally that woke is the woke is the idea that liberalism won't solve our social problems and that something further to the left is required culturally. Um, it's funny that you, what you said about like how the wokeness manifests or the authoritarianness of wokeness manifests in the left culturally and if through institutions on the right, it's kind of manifesting through the wall. Um, Cause I said the same thing myself <laughs> several times. Oh, cool. <laughs> and I agree with, I agree with that framing. However, to be a stick in the mud, I have to question what is the point of framing the question as like, who's more authoritarian in the first place? So, I mean, I guess in my mind, the reason I asked the question that way is because of that distinction that I think the mm -hmm. anti-woke people are enforcing it through law. So I think by its very nature, I would consider that more authoritarian because to me, the bar towards authoritarian is are you legally imposing this on people? Well, and if I if I can chime in here, I mean, just in terms of my own personal journey with regards to my view on wokeness, I feel like there's been an arc where there has been huge overreach and more authoritarianism on the side of the quote unquote woke that has you know, led to a backlash that has led to even more authoritarian tactics from the anti-woke. And, you know, people can hold whatever views they want to hold, good, bad, indifferent, like, you know, and it's fine to have a spectrum of views that are out there, whether I agree with them or not. When it becomes a problem that we should care about as a democratic society, in my opinion, is when it goes from a view I'm advocating for, for something I'm going to use <clears throat> authoritarian tactics to achieve. So I think that's why the focus on, all right, who's leveraging more authoritarianism in service of their ideology at this point? That's why the question to me is relevant. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I mean, I, I agree with what you said completely, Crystal, about how the wokeness of the left is what's created the anti-woke right-wing backlash, especially the legal backlash that we're seeing in all these state legislatures. And I would just be cautious when we're kind of talking about this question because I don't think it should be used like, oh, the right-wing is more authoritarian with their anti-wokeness, so like they're the bad guys. That should be what should be focused on when it should clearly, in my mind, if the left wokeness is what's creating the anti-woke authoritarian backlash in the law, both these things need to stop, essentially. Sure, but people are responsible for their own actions. Like of the course. fact that someone did something that pisses you off doesn't mean like you're justified in becoming an authoritarian. Well, no, it doesn't justify it like morally. But when we're talking about like how how coalitions of power form, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you're, I th and I think this is true for Trump. Not like not as much like 100 percent, but definitely I think Trump was able to run and is definitely running now. And you see with DeSantis, though he's kind of floundering nationally, kind of trying to run on this energy that if if the mainstream American, the normie, the undecided voter, if they're out there and they perceive that the left has lost its mind and is crazy, then they're just going to go to the right. And they might not perceive sort of the legal authoritarianism that we're talking about. So I want to get uh, Adam in here in a second, but I just wanted to respond to what Crystal and Sitch said, because I actually slightly disagree with you when you said um, the wokeness from the right or excuse me, the wokeness from the left led to the right wing backlash. I actually don't totally agree with that. I think that the right has sort of sort of hyper fixated on some extremes on the left and then they just sort of act like it's the entire left. And so then it leads to the backlash. So it's like they're perceiving it's the whole left going insane and being authoritarian and hyper-focusing on social justice stuff. But really, they're just nitpicking like 5% of something and acting like it's 100% of the left. And that's what then leads to 
So it could be a backlash, but I think it's mostly sort of like delusional in a sense that it's like as big a problem as they say it is. Well, we're also talking about cynical political actors who see something that has energy on their side and that they're going to use to build a national profile a la Ron Of DeSantis. course. Yeah, that I totally yeah. agree with. Yeah. All right, Adam, jump in. We haven't heard from you yet. Well, I just, I, I mean, I, you pitch this problem to me and I object to a little bit of the framing of woke and anti-woke because, I mean, I, I do perceive woke as like the authoritarian left. I've never really perceived of the right people on the right who are against wokeness as authoritarians because you can have people on the right that are against that are against authoritarianism on the left that aren't authoritarians like they're not taking extreme positions on gay marriage or abortion or anything like that you know they're they're reasonable people on the right that are against what's going on on the left i do think yeah, I, I think part of the conflict that that you will probably perceive with the legislation aspect of it is that the legislation affects people's lives more. But I think there's a perception issue here because I think the stuff, the authoritarian tactics that are on the left are in everybody's face all day long at work. And they're not necessarily thinking about the abortion laws or the 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 push to make gay marriage illegal again, or or these CRT bans. They're thinking about, I have to walk on eggshells at work and, and completely censor myself because I might offend somebody, or you know, some grievance archeologist might come along and dig up something I said on the internet 10 years ago and try to get me fired. So it's a much more tangible thing for people in their daily lives. And I think that's why a lot of times there's this big push against left-wing authoritarianism that is more present, even though it, you you might say that it's more, it's it's not as important uh, socially or, or legislatively. So um, basically, I'm, to, to sum up your argument and correct me if I'm wrong, the argument is sort of like uh, culture, in your opinion, supersedes legislation because it seemingly affects more people because culture affects everybody, whereas legislation might affect small pockets of people. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that for one point, uh, but the other point of well, well I go mean, ahead, go ahead. You you're you're saying that it uh, affects more people. I mean, it does affect more people, right? Well, I would say when it legally affects somebody, that has a bigger impact than just socially or culturally affecting people. Because you could, you know, feel bad about somebody going on a cancel culture crusade against you online. And that can suck. And I don't want to downplay that. But I think it's a lot worse when you talk about legislation going after people in a way where you used to be able to take an abortion pill in state X and now you can't take an abortion pill in state X. But look, to your well, numbers point- that's only going to matter if, you're, if you need an abortion or are in a situation that's where true, you but might need that's, an abortion. That's not the only issue where I would say the anti-woke people have become authoritarian. So like I, I broke this down into a, a number of different issues. So like book bans is one thing, we could discuss that. I think there's a lot of book banning coming from the anti-woke right. Uh, LGBTQ restrictions, we can get into that if you want, where there's a lot of that coming from the right. There's even protest restrictions in a lot of red states where they're cracking down on free protests in the wake of George Floyd, where there were some riots, but they do these bills that are overreaching where it goes after uh, protests too. You brought up uh, restrictions when it comes to abortion. I think that's a fair thing to bring up too. I even think things like the drug war, which are, I think it's an authoritarian thing to lock somebody up for putting something in their body when they're not hurting anybody else. I think that also affects that, you know, that sort of led to mass incarceration, which impacts a lot of people. So look, I take Take your point in the sense that culturally, almost by definition, it will affect it, like everybody, right? 
and, and yeah. legislatively, maybe it doesn't. I guess my point is, even though it might be smaller uh, numerically, I think it's like quantitatively a bigger impact. You understand what I'm saying? Or well, qualitatively, it's just, it's, my bad, qualitatively a bigger impact. I think it's just a, a, a tougher sell politically, obviously. And I think that's why the right is gaining ground on these issues legislation legislatively because it, they're able to do it you know uh behind you know uh behind the perception of the the general public I, I, and i just i want to say before we move forward you know yeah. i'm i'm pro-choice like i'm not I, I, i'm uh not against limiting abortion i'm pro-gay marriage um so so on those issues i i am definitely on your side but i do think that there are people on the right that are, you know, in favor of those things as well that are not necessarily against them. I think it's like a, a far right thing that they want to ban all abortion and ban reban gay marriage and stuff like I, that. But I I'll think, let you guys continue. I think that's true. And I mean, the polling bears that out. But mostly what we're talking about is what's happening at the Republican elite uh, level where they're in positions of power to, you know, make laws and enforce them and all the rest. And I think what you're saying assumes that there isn't an aspiration, at least on the right, to not only have a sort of authoritarian legislation that is, quote unquote, anti-woke, but they also want the culture. I mean, it's not that they want like free and fair exchange of ideas. There is an overt effort to no, we want to be the ones to police the language and police the culture and what people are allowed to say and what sort of dissent they're allowed to have. So I'll give you a perfect example. You probably saw this. There's a whole thing going on over at Texas A&M where first you had a university uh, president who was forced to resign because it came out basically, you know, they changed the deal of a New York Times, uh, former New York Times journalist who was going to be brought into the school in this prominent position. They watered it down under political pressure. That happened. Then you have another Texas A&M professor who criticized the lieutenant governor of the state and has now been suspended and is being investigated over that critique. Wow. The perfect example that I really love, which I always thought sort of said it all, is, um, you know, Mike Lindell, my pillow guy, not that he's like, you know, speaks for everyone, but I just thought this was sort of emblematic. He was setting up his own social media platform and he's like, it's a free speech platform. But to me, that means no taking the oh. Lord's name in vain, no <laughs> pornography, <laughs> like it was free speech, but as I define what ex is acceptable. So mm -hmm. I think there's an assumption in what you said that there isn't also the goal, and that goal is being fulfilled now to also take control of the culture in a very similar sort of authoritarian fashion. Well, I think the way that, the way that I see these power struggles work is that at all times, there's always extremists in every interest group and everyone on the left and the right, they're always constantly trying to pull society in their direction. Mm -hmm. But something environmentally has to occur that allows that energy to kind of reach into the mainstream and then allow the mainstream to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. So like there's always going to be, you know, the people, the far right people who do want to bring the theocracy or, you know, whatever it is they want to bring into the America. And they're always pulling. And then I look at it like, well, what's allowing that energy to suddenly like sink its hooks into the consciousness of the mainstream American? And I think, in my opinion, the reason that the right is able to do this, I agree that that this is done cynically. You know, there's a big problem right now with with the right where, you know, economically, the right wing populist and the right wing neocons don't agree on a lot of issues. And so right. that is part of why, like, it's perfect for them. It's actually perfect for them to fixate on wokeness and social issues because that's where there's an agreement. 
And right. if we lived in like a hypothetical world where wokeness didn't exist, it didn't come about in like 2014-ish, I don't know what the Republican Party would be doing right now at all. Right. I have no clue. But but because that energy does exist, because the wokeness does exist, it seems like that's what's giving the right the ability to do all this. And that's kind of why, you know, when we're talking about like the, the issue here about who's more authoritarian and – you know, I don't know if you've been listening to, you know, uh, the Young Turks and Anna Kasparian have been kind of bringing this point up a lot recently, which is that it just seems like when the left defends a lot of these woke issues, it just keeps giving the right easy victories to it just tease them up essentially for easy victories one after the other. Can I say I, one thing I'm curious about is whether you think we've reached peak wokeness, because I, I actually reject the idea that at this point, this is the anti-woke stuff is even working out that well for the right. I mean, DeSantis, DeSantis was floundering and that was his whole thing. Right. He changed his strategy to put woke on as his fourth biggest issue. It used to be number one. Go ahead. He says it in like every freaking sentence. He clearly has mm-hmm. decided like this is the thing. And I think for part of the reason that you're saying, which is that, you know, he's trying to stitch together this coalition of people who don't like Trump with people who used to like Trump and people who are moderate right. and people are hard right and whatever. And so he's like wokeness. That's the place where we can where maybe we can meet. It's obviously not even working out with the Republican base. You know, there's also some signs like a bunch of these corporations are firing now their chief diversity officer because they figured out that, you know, these trainings actually actively make people more racist in the workplace (laughs) and are not working out. And the whole thing is just a damn grift. So you've got that. You also have on, on the electoral side, it just doesn't seem to have the juice that the Republican Party seemed to think that it was going to. I mean, in 2022, there was a lot of money that was spent on like anti-trans, anti-CRT, et cetera. It obviously didn't work out for them. And then, you know, as I was saying with the Ron DeSantis stuff. So do you think that we've kind of reached peak wokeness and we're on the other side of that? Well, I think we definitely reached, I think the peak wokeness of like, when the things were the wokest has already passed there because mm-hmm. it does seem like not just the republicans are pushing back it does seem like a lot of people are just getting tired of dealing with wokeness which you know demands a great thing um so yeah we could be could be reaching that that point already so going forward it might be less and less advantageous for republicans to to use these issues mm-hmm. but right. with desantis I'm I'm skeptical that him having problems nationally has anything to do with the wokeness. I think it's just it's funny. I said this from like day one. I said, you know, DeSantis has the charisma of wet cardboard. I just <laughs> don't perceive him like being able to go on a national stage and really get a te- get energy, especially when you know he's going up against Trump, which you know if you if you love or hate Trump, you have to acknowledge that he's very charismatic. He has a lot of mm-hmm. energy, you know, behind him. And I just yeah, I can't see a world in which how DeSantis can stand up to Trump in that arena. So so let me let me jump in here because there's a bunch of interesting things I want to respond to. So I think there's some level of like default anti wokeness that every reasonable person sort of has, right? So to give a couple examples of this is they had polled the term Latinx to see if people are like it, don't like it, use it, don't use it, whatever. It was like under 10%. I don't remember the exact number, 9%, 6%, 3%. It was something like that. Nobody's mm-hmm. buying the Latinx stuff. So that's like a default, like when people are like, just don't don't change our language colossally overnight and pretend like it's some like crusade for morality. Because it's not. Stop it. There's also, uh, what was the other example I wanted to give? Um, defund the police. Defund the police polls at like 18% or something like that. Because I think the default perspective for most Americans is like, well, of course we need police. So if you say defund the police, Regardless of what point you think you might be making, it sounds like I want to abolish the police and have no police. And people just aren't on board with that. So I think there's like a default 
anti-wokeness. But I think the problem with DeSantis and many on the right who are on this like anti-woke crusade is that they've started overreaching colossally to the point where they are using the legislation that I talked about before, which is actually authoritarian, which mirrors the tactics of many on the woke side. So, you know, what was the example? Ron DeSantis is currently waging a lawsuit against Bud He's Light of over the ad with Dylan Mulvaney. <laughs> yeah. So you have a trans person in an ad and you want to wage a lawsuit over this? Like, that strikes me as those shrieking social justice warriors online with the blue hair and the septum ring in 2012 who were telling you, don't do this, you can't do that, stop doing this. It's like Ron DeSantis mm -hmm. has become that person, but on the right. You understand what I'm saying? Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't disagree. Um, you know, I thought like the whole don't say gay bill, which was the parental rights education, you know, part of that bill I agreed with, which was that if a school is going to transition or socially transition, I should say a child, that they should definitely have to notify the parents. Um, and that's wild that 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 wouldn't be the case. And the reason they passed that in Florida was because there was a school that was doing this without notifying the parents and the child attempted to uh, commit suicide. And so, like, I agree, like, what happens is like this, like, they do something that seems reasonable, but then they always take it too far, because then they add the element of like, well, you can't talk about, you know, gayness existing essentially until ninth grade or whatever the the, the frame point is. So that seems to be the case um, in all politics. It's like, oh, you agree like like with some piece of legislation, but then someone always takes it too far. But even yeah. though, but just to go back a second for the peak wokeness, even though I think we have sort of gone past peak wokeness, I mean, it's still happening. It's still an issue. Like it was only a few months ago, I think that it was uh, Uber, I believe, fired or suspended their DEI chief, not because they're like, oh, you're too woke. They fired the the DEI chief, who I believe was Asian, because she was trying to push back against people being racist against white people at Uber. And this was this year, only a few months ago. So this, like, these issues are still cropping up. And I think to Adam's point, what he said earlier, is that even if this legislation is, you know, more, quote, authoritarian because it's a law as opposed to someone being fired from their job or the cultural pressure, it's mm. still the, the left version of it still is like in everyone's face or in a lot of people's face at all times. Yeah. I I don't I don't disagree with that. You know, where I think the where I think the normal like well-adjusted human American is is you know, in real life non online super online interactions, they tend to grant the people around them some grace, you know, some charity. Like there's a ability to screw up and apologize and <laughs> move forward and the problem I always had with wokeness was that there was no grace, that it's like anything you said, you screwed up, like it's that's it. You're done. You're in the bad circle. You're out. And as someone who's been a you know lifelong, like liberal, progressive, leftist, whatever, wherever I was on my own political arc, like that's the polar opposite of the way that I viewed the world. I always felt that people should be granted that charity, that there should be redemption. Even if you committed a heinous crime, I thought, you know, if you've paid your debt to society and you can reform yourself, I always believed in that vision of grace and charity. But now I do see the exact the exact thing happening, you know, on the right that concerned me among my own side. And like, I feel like the libs of TikTok account is the perfect example of this because you're talking about cancellation coming from the quote unquote left of like getting people fired and digging up their old, old social media, et cetera. Like that's what that whole account is dedicated to finding someone who saying something that is weird or can be taken out of context to seem weird, hunting that person down, ruining their life, putting it in front of as many people as you possibly can. 
And it's not an accident that that account has become like a huge success on the right right at this moment. I mean, that is the literally the same cancellation tactics that were so decried mm -hmm. when they were used by people who were, you know, on the left now being deployed by a large uh, and per large and at this point powerful account on the right. Isn't the left though always separates cancel culture into cancel culture and accountability culture. And I have a, like, I, I look at cancel culture as trying to cancel people over things that are, you know, untrue, basically digging up evidence of racism, sexism, or homophobia that's kind of on the line, borderline. And, you know, you dig into the person personally and you find out, well, this person's not really a racist or a sexist at all. They're just framing this person as a racist or a sexist to cancel them, which I think is completely different than kind of the lives of TikTok situation where, you know, they're, they're oftentimes looking at people who are in positions of power, like teachers and administrators who are saying and doing things that really are, are uh, clearly this person's belief system and trying to put some accountability on that person. I mean, I don't so know how you can, I don't know how you can say that based on like one TikTok that like nope, this captures the entirety yeah, and like of this person seen, and their ideology. Seen like if there's a well, uh, like a, look, a gay pride I, flag on hanging in a classroom, that's a scandal. Yeah. Like should that really be a scandal? I don't care well, if there's an American look, flag in a classroom, I'm fine with it. Why well, gay pride flag? I'm fine with it. It doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Look, I'm outing myself here. I'm not a regular watcher of Libs of TikTok, okay? <laughs> I like, watch everything that comes across Libs of TikTok. The few that I've seen though, and they've actually dug into the people, you find out that the person is, you know, actively indoctrinating people inside the classroom. So it's it's not just a, you know, a, a innocent remark or, you know, a teacher that used the N-word in class to say that using the N-word was wrong. And then this person is being mischaracterized as a racist. I guess this is a person who actively believes in, you know, uh, LGBT acceptance, and they're out there promoting that in their classroom. So, but, okay, LGBT acceptance, I think, is fine to teach in a classroom, because it's like, hey, like, people are different, except that people are different. I agree that there might be a line where it's like, this is inappropriate that you crossed over, but my whole okay, point yeah. about the anti-woke crusade is that it has now very clearly gone way past the line. So there's this report that comes out every couple of years, this PEN America report on book bans. And the book bans have been really skyrocketing. And I think it's a direct result of this sort of uh, well, moral panic I coming from the I right. I hate to interrupt. Yep, I hate to interrupt. But I yep. just, I object to the framing of this as a book ban when you're talking about a book that is available anywhere outside of the school library. Like it's just saying that this material has a little, is a little bit too racy for a school library so it's so, not they're not banning the books by any means well so here's my point though a lot of the stuff are not over any line whatsoever and i can give you examples where you'd agree mm -hmm. with that i mean if you want me to give you a couple examples here this is from the hill in april quote in an, in ohio in an ohio school district officials recently intervened to prevent their children from hearing author james tharp read his book it's okay to be a unicorn during a school visit illustrated with bright colors and rainbows the story is an imaginative jaunt about a unicorn pretending to be a horse who has to summon the courage to reveal his true identity the book ostensibly about accepting our true identities and not being afraid of standing out was prohibited after a single parent complained that the book and author had a gay agenda well, I, I haven't I haven't seen the book, obviously, so I can't 
comment on that. Obviously, different parents are going to have different objections to different things. I mean, that's part of the democratic process. So, Sitch, you want to chime in on that? Well, I mean, I guess the, the issue like with the book ban stuff is, you know, I'm assuming there are definitely, I'm sure, books that we would all agree shouldn't have been removed from a school. Um, but I'm assuming there's also books that we would all agree should be removed from school. You know, everyone points to, I'm sure you've seen a million times, <laughs> they always share this like some comic book that shows explicit scenes of, you know, children engaging in oral sex or something. That's what was in a lot of, that was in one of these books that was in a lot of these schools. Um, and there's some uh, Tony Morrison books that were removed from a lot of school curriculums that featured, you know, father uh, raping his daughter and things of that nature, which, you know, I understand the, the artistic merit for some of these things, but I also understand a parent that's not necessarily wanting their child to to learn about that in school. I, I understand what you're saying completely, but I would just counter with, in this report, they lay out the exact numbers as to which books are being banned, what's in it that's leading for them to be banned. 44% mm -hmm. of them are banned for violence, 38% are on mental health um, and bullying and suicide and substance abuse, 30% is sexual health, 30% is 30% uh, is death, 30% is race, 26% LGBTQ stuff. They only say it's a total of 24% is about like sex stuff. The other stuff is like violence, mental health, uh, you know, invo things involving death or, or teen pregnancy or whatever. So it's really like we're trying to like, you know, baby uh, these kids who are coming to an age where they're gonna have to start learning about not only crazy things in the world, but also, yeah, about their own bodies. I mean, I don't know about you guys, I got started getting sex education in sixth grade in New York. And even mm -hmm. that maybe felt like it was a borderline, like maybe they should have done it a little earlier because you already starting to experience some things. I mean, these kids are all on the internet. Like, let's be real. Uh, like, yeah, to me, of course. In, like, you know, we have kids, right? Um, the What's in the school library, which by the way, they're never even gonna look at is like the least of my concern with my children's yes. upbringing. I think it speaks more though to what we're trying to get at, which is there is a moral panic on the right where there is a freak out about quote unquote wokeness, which encompasses a lot of things, including quote unquote transgender ideology and has led to a lot of hysterical overreaction, which is translated into a lot of hysterical legislation, which is overtly like and being struck down in courts as being against the First Amendment. I mean, a number of Ron DeSantis's laws have already been hit in federal court for, you know, violating people's First Amendment rights. If it was Democratic lawmakers, if it was Joe Biden doing the equivalent on the left, oh, my God, would there be a freak out over the authoritarian crackdown on, you know, people's ability to say and do what they want? Well, you're you're pitching the book bans as the right being authoritarian. And I just like you put these these book bans, which like I said, I don't even really think it's a book ban. It's a book mm -hmm. prohibition in a public school, okay, mm -hmm. which is more accurate. You put that up against something like trans women in sports. And it's just it's not even on the radar. Like it's not even close. But wait, so how I but mean, whose the number fault is that? I mean, that, the numbers are kind of staggering. There's 1,477 instances of books being banned in just 2022 and 2023. That's a 28% increase from the prior yes, six months. I, I, and it includes like yeah. Holocaust books, man. There's a book, 2022, Mouse. It's a, it's yes, a story can... of his father's experience in a concentration camp. They banned that. 
look, Kyle, you can get this out on uh, on a show, on a, a progressive talk show. I do. Yes, and, I do. and yeah, and, and talk about it. But I'm just saying the general public, the normie voter out there is not thinking about this stuff. But you know they're what? They're thinking about other issues. I like, agree. But they're also much more prevalent in their not, lives. Than this they're also issue. not so, thinking about trans people. women in sports. <laughs> trans people are not on which their radar. Like they're like, three what's three a people. trans person? <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, the, the, I, I actually well, no, if think. If they have on. kids in school that are competing against trans women, I guarantee you they're thinking. Yeah, but, thinking again, about, but there's seven on. of them in there's, the whole country. Yeah. Go ahead. I mean, they <laughs> literally pass laws in some states where there's like one kid that this law is about. And so. I actually, listen, if you pull the public, there's no doubt the public is at this point on the side of trans women shouldn't be competing in girls sports. Public is on your side on that. But is it the issue that they're voting on? Is it the thing that they're like worried about as they're trying to pay their bills and go about their lives? No, not even close. I don't. I completely agree with you. Okay, it's they're not voting on this issue. The question, though, is the perception of which side is more authoritarian to the normie voter, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about these books, a few books that are not allowed in the in the public library, I don't think the normie voter perceives that as a giant infringement on but their rights. The, you know, I think a lot. I think you're right. I think you're right. Are, I think you're right. Yeah, I think a lot of people when, don't even know about these yeah, book meds. I think you're right about that. But I I think that to bring up a point from earlier. They do know about Roe v. Wade being overturned, and we had like the the test case of that in yes, the midterms. Okay, yes, and the Republicans yes. really underperformed because that was viewed as an authoritarian move from a conservative Supreme Court. Go ahead. Sitch and I, Sitch and I both said that the the abortion issue actually made the Democrats competitive. Uh, and election of, denying, yeah, and the election denying. I think. Yeah, all, all of the all of the January six stuff, obviously. The yeah, because. Yeah, people do not want to give up their rights to abortion, and it's totally thrown all of that in flux. The question that I have is, why do you have, why do you have President Biden afraid to just come out and say, "I am against abortion in the third trimester. I am against well, late-term abortions." That's what Roe v. Wade was, though. Roe v. Wade, the way it works, I know. Is, why doesn't he? Yeah. Why does he support it openly? Well, I mean, that's the traditional Democratic position. And Biden was actually supported the Hyde Amendment and the Hyde Amendment mandates that federal tax money can't go towards any abortion. So he's actually even more conservative than your average Democrat on this. But the default Democratic perspective is first trimester, it's a right. Second trimester, there can be some health regulations. Third trimester, uh, states can ban it if they so choose. So I think the traditional Democratic position is like the moderate position. And it's a position I happen to agree with. I don't want abortion at the ninth month, two days before the baby's going to be born. And I think, like you said, your average voter Mm -hmm. doesn't want that either. But I I, I do think I do think. To the extent that there is, and I think you're right to identify some discomfort among Democratic politicians. And first of all, I mean, they just don't want to talk about that. And and right now, because of the state of affairs in terms of the abortion landscape and Roe versus Wade being overturned, like that is not the, the live issue that's on the table. But I think you're correctly identifying that, you know, the people who are most invested in these issues and are organized around it are the ones that have the most fringe and extreme positions. And that's certainly the case on the right. You know, people who are pushing nationwide abortion fans and from the moment of conception and heartbeat bills and all of this stuff. (laughs) And, you know, the activists uh, on the left, the pro-choice activists on the left who do have what I consider to be extreme positions about, you know, yes, no restrictions all the way up to the moment of birth. Those voices are disproportionately powerful in both political parties. I don't I don't Mm -hmm. think there's any doubt about that. Well, it's 
I mean, we can talk about abortion because I think, I mean, it's definitely a very important issue. I wouldn't really classify abortion as having like a woke issue. And it's obviously an issue the Republicans have been and Democrats have been fighting over for you know, 50, 60 years. Yeah. Um, and like yet, like to me, it's just kind of like they're just using well, actually, I mean, it didn't really even have anything to do with, you know, the woke issue. It's just the Supreme Court, obviously, that, you know, yeah. Trump got I think the that's justice fair. he wanted. Um, but just on the abortion thing, it's. I think the problem is is kind of like what Adam was laying out. There's, there was a there was a hearing on abortion where the Democrats had invited some experts to speak about abortion, and none of the experts that they invited would be willing to come out against like you know third trimester abortion bans, which is a huge optical mistake for the Democrats because this was all the Republicans were playing. They were playing clips of these you know people testifying the Congress that were terrified of advocating for a third trimester abortion ban. And then I think you, there's something like nine states currently that have abortions with no restrictions at all. And so the problem is like when we talk to right-wingers, because we're both you know pro-choice but within limitations, when we mm-hmm. talk to right-wingers, all they do is they keep saying, you know, the Democrats want abortions with no restrictions. And I'm like, I don't think that's the average position because I don't think it is. But then they just point to these, you know, nine states that are doing this. And that's kind of the, the weird question is, you know, and I think Joe Biden should come. I know I know he has in the past. I don't know if he's going to do it, you know, this election. But I definitely think that Joe Biden needs to kind of lead on this issue or some Democrat needs to lead on this issue and say, well, listen, I think we, listen, we need we're in favor of, pro, of pro-choice, but it has to be, you know, within reason. Hillary actually debated this with Bernie, and it was one of the very few areas where I agreed more with Hillary than Bernie. So I do think Democrats, even in the modern era, this is a position that they're repping. But I'd also point out that there are even more red states where they want to ban it from literally the moment of conception. So I think that to the extent that there's some extremism on this issue, I definitely think it's on both sides. I think it's more on the Republican side. But I don't think, to your point about the book bans, too, I don't even think your average American knows about this portion of it. I mean, I have the poll numbers in front of me right here. The most popular Mm -hmm. position in the country is abortion should be legal under certain circumstances. This is a Gallup poll. That's the most popular position in the country by far. And then you have 13% of the country say it should be illegal in all circumstances. And you have 34% who say it should be legal under any circumstances. So like the country, I think, is squarely in that reasonable range on this issue. But also, I would disagree with everybody here in the sense that I do think abortion and I do think some of these other issues that we wouldn't normally put in the wokeness bucket, Mm. I do think they actually belong in there. I agree that they're not colloquially viewed as in there, and I'm like Mm. the only person saying this, but I think that anything in the realm of social issues, whether it's cultural stuff or legal stuff relating to social issues, I think all that belongs in the wokeness conversation. That means book bans, that means LGBTQ things, that means, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, abortion, that means anything that could impact people's uh, social lives, I think we should talk about it in the context of abortion, because any sort of authoritarian restrictions on those things, I think is is an overreach. Well, and I do think, I mean, abortion, in my opinion, was probably the most central issue in terms of the midterm election. It sounds like you guys agree with that as well. But I think it ties into a whole basket of issues where it just felt like Republicans were way too out there for normal voters. And, you know, one of those areas where I think Republicans have now really overreached in terms of the the center of gravity and conversation and legislation is on, you know, gay and trans issues. You know, there was a the initial conversation. You can even see this in the evolution of Ron DeSantis and how he talks about and this Matt stuff, Walsh, right? All these guys. Yeah. The initial conversation was like worried about sports, which public is, you know, on the side of being worried about sports. Now, you could argue how important that issue is, et cetera, but definitely majority position. Worried about, you know, kids, 
uh, and transitioning. Complex issue. Very complicated. American people feel wary about this. There was like sort of solid ground there. And the framing of this for, for DeSantis was around parental choice, as we were discussing before. But now it's gone way beyond that, where it's, by the way, for for some increasingly vocal and also as embodied in some legislation, you know, even adults, we're not sure we really want to let them transition or we want to throw as many roadblocks as we can in their way. And that's where you lose the American public, because American people are like, listen, you're an adult. Go do what you want to do. Be you live your life. Make your choices. Who am I to say? Who am I to judge how you want to live your life? And then there's also been this, you know, it, it sort of felt like the whole gay marriage situation was settled after a burger fell. Republicans just kind of like were like, all right, I guess we lost this one. We're moving forward. That increasingly seems to be back on the table as there's much more conversation about, no, actually, we don't accept um, gay marriage and we're, you know, opposed to people being gay. And we think this is a degeneracy. OK, groomer, et cetera, et cetera. So on those issues, it feels like there has been a real creep in terms of the rhetoric and the actual positioning. And I said, I, you know, DeSantis is a perfect example. So when he first starts talking about the quote unquote, don't say gay bill, it's all around parental choice. Well, now that he's running for president in a Republican primary where he's decided he wants to court the hard right, his campaign team is spinning up these videos touting how anti-trans he is and how he's the most anti-trans um, candidate in the race, which is obviously very different than how he was selling all of this before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm completely against all of that stuff. Like I said, I support gay marriage. Uh, I was against the 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 ban of gay marriage in California. I think it was Prop 8 when it happened. Like it totally disgusted me that California would do something like that. Mm -hmm. But um I I have to go back to what Sitch said about how, you know, the lands, the cultural landscape really is both extremes on the left and the right are looking for an opportunity to pull their side further in their direction. And on the gay marriage thing, I'm I'm completely against it. And I agree with what you're saying about how, you know, the Matt Walsh's of the world have suddenly put gay marriage back on the table. But I do think the 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 left, the Democrats, especially with the, the their kind of blinders on to the potential downsides of, of some of these affirmative care treatments for children, have opened up an opportunity for the Matt Walsh's of the world to do that. And, and if, if, if we lived in a world where there wasn't this affirmative care model, that is, you know, I don't think the scientific understanding of what's going on here is enough to come out with the kind of declarations people on the left are coming out with of affirmative care, then I don't, I don't think the Matt Walsh's of the world would be able to do what they're doing with gay marriage. I think the, the left opened up that opportunity for them. So, all right, so let me respond to that. So, um, like Crystal said, early on in this debate, it was framed around like, hey, man, look, we're just trying to protect kids. We don't think right. you should be yes. genitally mutilating children or whatever. This was the line that they were going with. But over time, that was like mission creep and eventually got to the point where people like Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles had effectively admitted, even for adults, I don't even really think this should be allowed. I interviewed Jordan Peterson and asked him straight up, like, do you think, um, you know, trans health care should be banned even for adults? And he was like, I don't know. He gave me an I don't know answer, which I thought was crazy. I thought that's a slam dunk easy. Like, of course, it should be allowed for adults. But even when it comes on the legal front, like I have a New York Times article here. Many states are trying to restrict gender treatments for adults, too. 
And then they go on to explain that in at least five states, actually the number's higher now, I think it's eight or nine, um, Republican legislators are proposing bills that would uh, restrict gender-affirming care. Some states, up to anyone under 21. Other states, anybody under 26, they want to do it. So I think there's real mission creep, and they're really overreaching. Um, and when I looked up how it, like the, the trans healthcare situation already works in this country, I was actually very surprised to see how nuanced it is. Now, I know in Europe it's different and they're more aggressive and there's plenty of things to pick apart and critique there. I've always been sympathetic to people who say, look, when you're dealing with a minor, this is a totally different question. I mean, adults could do what they want. Minors, it's a much more complex question. I totally agree with that. But the way it works right now is, first of all, you need a psychological evaluation to determine whether a child has gender dysphoria. Okay. Right off the bat, by the way, I totally agree with that. I don't think it should just be you walk in, hey, like, I kind of feel it. Okay, let's go. No, I think there should be a psychological evaluation. That's point number one. Then they do puberty blockers, which are not used until after there are signs of early puberty. So that could be anywhere from age 8 to 13 for girls and a year or two later for boys. Uh, they have to be used, they've been used for decades to treat what's called uh, precocious puberty, which is a, basically a medical condition that causes puberty to begin very early. Um, the effects of that are reversible other than uh, bone density might be an issue. They may cause a decrease in bone density, but then that reverses when the drugs are stopped. And then according to the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, they say hormones uh, start at 16 or older, surgery is 18 and older, and breast removal surgery could be 17 or older. So when I looked at the way the guidelines actually worked right now in the country, I was like, wow, this is actually very like nuanced and, and reasonable. And so I thought any attempt from legislators to sort of mess with this, I think is overly political. And they're sort of doing the mass hysteria thing as if there's like thousands and thousands of children at eight years old who are being, you know, castrated or whatever. I just don't think that's accurate. And I think that the way it works now is actually pretty solid. Would you disagree with that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would disagree with it. Um, well, you know, we, when you're talking about the book bans and everything earlier, I think a lot of what is fueling this and even the overreach and the things I would agree with is the fear that a lot of parents have for their child, uh, for their child, you know, you know, quote, becoming trans or whatever. I think that is kind of what's driving a lot of this. And I do have a lot of questions and concerns with sort of the way in which, you know, the American model is focusing on things. You know, like you have in, in Europe, you have, I think this, I think it's Finland, Sweden, UK, and Norway, and maybe France, I think they've all stopped using the affirmative care model, which is kind of what you were laying out. And Wait, what I just laid that, out is affirmative care? That's affirmative care, what I described? Yeah, well, that's a part of the affirmative care model, yes. This seemed more nuanced. I thought affirmative care is you walk in and they're like, all right, we're good to go. Well, so the affirmative care model is essentially that instead of you're not really challenging someone's identity at all. You're just sort of like saying, oh, well, like, well, let's see, like, we'll let you kind of dictate the terms of kind of what your identity is, essentially. And it goes down the the model pathway that you're talking about, where you give someone puberty blockers, and then you give them cross-sex hormones and all these other things. And there's a couple problems with that model. The biggest one to me, which hasn't really been addressed in, I don't, I don't think it's ever been addressed to the science, is that before they started giving kids puberty blockers, you know, in the, the 2000s and earlier, when they looked at children that were going to clinicians and were diagnosed with gender dysphoria, there was something like a massive realm of 60 to 90% of kids would desist once they went through puberty. So that means that 60 to 90% of kids before they gave kids puberty blockers would be identified as having gender dysphoria. 
And then when they went through puberty, those feelings of gender dysphoria would go away. But then once they start giving kids puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, that number drops to like somewhere in the realm of like 10 to 20%. And so to me, that's very troubling because you're like, well, wait a minute. We don't want to have a situation where giving the kids puberty blockers, having them socially transition is preventing a natural desistance for, for children who have gender dysphoria or believe they have gender dysphoria. And this question yeah. hasn't really been answered in American medicine. And well, not only that, but even in, even in uh, I think in Canada was there's there's a doctor named Kenneth Zucker who I mean th this is a doctor who literally worked I think he was the head of the APA's uh, work group for actually writing the guidelines for for gender dysphoria for children in the DSM five and he had a clinic where he was doing non affirmative care model uh, treatment which was basically what everyone used to do and it got shut down essentially by trans activists who were saying that he was doing conversion therapy and he got so, fired from doing that. And he actually even was able to sue the school that fired him for defamation and won because he wasn't doing quote conversion therapy. So let me get Crystal in here. Uh, I just wanted to point out the first thing that I came across when I tried to figure out, Hey, how was this done in the U S right now? The very first thing, and I could send you the PBS article if you want, that goes into detail about all this stuff is they say you need a psychological evaluation to determine whether the child has gender dysphoria, which yeah. sounds to me like they'll say, Hey, if you don't have it, no, we're not going to give you the treatment, which is something I agree with. So I don't know if what you're saying is I don't support the affirmative care model and this isn't the affirmative care model, but whatever you want to call what I just described, that's the thing that I think makes sense. And that's the thing that I would agree well, with. Go ahead. Chris. But to me, this all misses what to me is the bigger question is who should be deciding these things? Because I don't think anyone here will disagree that the science is, you know, science is oftentimes complicated, contradictory, nuanced, varies case by case, depending on the person. And so do you want doctors and families to be making these decisions? Or do you want like Sarah Huckabee Sanders <laughs> to be making or, these or decisions based on the politics of the moment and what she thinks that, you know, her Republican base is going to want to see? Or trans activists, because obviously you had Ken Zucker, who is a, a clinician in a treatment facility who should be making the decisions. I think we would all agree. Mm -hmm. A scientist yeah. who is literally shut down by trans activists. I agree with that. Well, and he was able to go to, <laughs> I don't know anything about this case, by the way, but you said he was able to go to court and win. So it seems like, you know, there well, was he's a able to win defamation. He's still, I he's, mean, he's still, yeah, he's, he's, he's still not being able to do down. scientific research is what we need. Yeah. Well, so, so I don't know anything well, about this case either, but as you're describing it, I agree that it's sort of egregious. It sounds like we're all coming to ironically the enlightened centrist position here <laughs> where we're saying, Hey, do a real analysis, determine if there's actually gender dysphoria and then proceed from there. Yeah. And doctors well, this, and doctors and families should be the ones making the decisions, not, you know, banned from certain treatments by the state in a blanket fashion. I mean, I do feel and, and I, not I do trans feel, activists, though, sure, because like sure. this case, we're talking about the authoritarianism of the left. If the and trans the right, activists, and the right. Well, yes, but in this specific case, I think it's the left. I doubt it's right-wing authoritarians that are shutting down Ken Zucker's clinic. Right, but we're t you're talking about one clinic. We're talking about bans that happen across an entire state. I'm talking about the five state. states that are banning, uh, right. you know, transitioning even for adults. That's what I'm talking we, about. And well, actually, I think it's more I wanna, than that now. I want to address the, the affirmative care thing because that's really important. Go um, so I agree that obviously a, a person should be have to go to a psychiatrist or something of that nature to get you know, diagnosed with gender dysphoria. The problem is if the only acceptable way in America for clinicians or for psychiatrists to diagnose children 
is through the affirmative care model, which I believe is fundamentally flawed from the beginning, then it doesn't matter if they're getting a, like the therapist saying that they have gender dysphoria because they're following a flawed model. What that do you is, see as the solution to that? That hasn't been tested. Yeah. What Let do you see? Saying, I, I agree with the, you. I'm just skeptical that it works like that in all cases already. That's yeah. So the only what point is, the, is go it ahead, like legislation that's the solution? What do you see as being the solution well, to that? Like, How do you curb the, the right. transaction? do their job, it sounds like to me, right? Is that your point, I, Sitch? Just like let the psychologist do their job without any well, pressure from either trans activists or Republican legislature? Is that the idea? It, like, like theoretically, obviously, yeah, like the best case scenario would be, and this is, and this has never been done, which is wild to me. Like when we had COVID, which was a virus, you could see a virus under a microscope. It was very clear. Like we knew that it existed unless you, you know, believe conspiracies about 5G towers or whatever. Um, <laughs> you could see the virus under the microscope. And even with that, when they're testing the vaccine, they'd have, you know, two groups of people. They give one group the vaccine. They give, they don't give one group anything, or they give them a placebo, right? That's how you test like all these treatments. That's how you test medicine. We've never done this with the affirmative care model, despite the fact that these wild, uh, this you know, differences in in uh, desistance exist. They've never done this with affirmative care model, despite the fact that the number of kids, you know, identifying as having gender dysphoria has exploded. And to me, that's like that seems so irresponsible that we're just basically doing this treatment that's never been tested in some kind of you know placebo group control group study, and we're just accepting that this is supposed to be the case. So I agree with you. Like theoretically, I would hope that the medicine and that the doctors could do this on their own. But the problem is, if they're not, if they're not doing it on their own, what do we do? Do we yeah. just kind of sit there and try to pressure them socially? Or do you need the government to kind of say, whoa, 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 we need to do something about this? So, what, but what law would, so then what law would you put on the books? Only 16 and up can, uh, you know, get this treatment? Only 18 and up? Like, what law would you propose? I, w I mean, unfortunately, because I think that gender dysphoria is real, and I do think people are essentially born with it, and I do think kids can have it. But I think that the false positives are going to end up outweighing the true hits. And so I, I do think that they should probably have a uh, at least a 16, but probably an 18 year old ban on giving kids puberty blockers and anything like that. Yeah, I think our I think our core disagreement is that I don't agree that the false positives are going to outweigh the real positives. So that's like the core how, of our disagreement. Your, but I see I see what you're saying. Go because ahead, Adam. the detransition rate is so low. Yeah, that's true, too. Go ahead, Adam. Yeah, but the, problem, the thing is with the detransition rate, like when they talk about the detransition rate, they're talking about people who like from the long term studies who most of them transitioned as adults or they transitioned before the affirmative care model was in place. We don't really have long-term studies for for people that are going through this current yeah. So in uh, other words, we'll see. Method. We'll see. I mean, look, my thoughts have always been: if you're somebody who's just like latching onto this as an identity and it's just like a phase you're going through, that's not the kind of person who's going to end up chopping chopping off their dick and balls. But like, right? Like that's I not mean, the way well, I generally wait, look wait, at well, it. Wait, you you say that? I but, do. Yes, very strongly. But, I say that. I very know, strongly. <laughs> there's a lot of. <laughs> So the the ideas around social contagion have been very well studied, and we've seen that there's been a massive amount of social contagion in something like suicide, which is more extreme than, you know, removing parts of your body. Or we've also seen this, this has been repeated with, um, in the 90s and in the 80s, there was a panic around people getting false memories, where they go to psychiatrists and they you know, go through hypnosis or whatever, or just by talking to psychiatrists and they'd started, they'd be like, oh, I remember all these you know, memories of being sexually abused as a child by my parents. Or there was another thing where there's a panic where all these people thought that they were part of some sort of satanic ritual and they could swear that they had been in a cage in kindergarten and that they had, you know, witnessed people do all these satanic rituals. So, 
And then, and then even before that, there was this whole panic where like the numbers of people identifying as having multiple personalities exploded because a couple movies came out that were like mm-hmm. really focusing on multiple uh, personalities. So, and then, you, and then it's also just, we know with like the placebo effect. So just the idea, like, yes, there's going to be a lot of people that can definitely go down this pathway, especially, and here's but something that's I think they'll kind of socially transition. Too. Again, this is our core disagreement. I think that they might like dress as the opposite sex or whatever. But once you get to the point where you're taking like pharmaceutical drugs and you're considering chopping off your fucking private parts, like that's another level that I think people are going to be like, well, hey, but, you know what? Let me test this out a I little mean, bit again, before I go further. I mean, again, this gets back to like, I think there are reasonable debates and disagreements to have about and and people who are doing this care, even, you know, within amongst themselves, they're having debates about what is the right care protocol and how do we do this? That's, you know, best for the the young people that we are dealing with here. To me, mm-hmm. the question comes back to who are the people who should be making those decisions? And, you know, the core uh, the core discussion we're having here is about which side is more authoritarian. And I just can't put some trans activist shutting down one clinic on anywhere near the same level as entire states for political reasons, telling doctors what they can and can't do. So th- there was a, these... there's... God, such... well, okay. So another thing that's kind of con- troubling is that before the affirmative care model came out and before kind of like, the craze, the trans craze, if you want to call it that, like recently has sort of started. The number for the number ratio between girls and boys ident- having gender dysphoria, it was like four to one boys. So there's four times as many boys as girls identifying as trans and having gender dysphoria. And now the number is one to one. And there's been no explanation for that increase in girls, except that it's been well documented and well known in science and, and psychology that girls are far more affected by social contagion and social pressures. And so we kind of get into this realm and, and also for girls, and, you know, and you're talking about like, why would someone cut off parts of their genitalia or whatever? I could, I mean, it's, it's not that, it's actually not that confusing, especially for girls who are kind of exploiting the numbers when, you know, you're a young girl, you start going through puberty, you feel weird, right? You have all these chemicals in your brain. You're like, oh, this makes, I feel depressed. I feel weird. I feel anxious. I never had these feelings before. Maybe men are staring at me. Maybe men are looking at me sexually. This makes me feel uncomfortable. You, you take puberty blockers. Oh, maybe those feelings go away. You, get, you start taking testosterone, which is a natural mood booster. Oh, you suddenly feel great. It's very easy to see how someone could accidentally go down this pathway. I don't think it's as much of a stretch or as, as confusing yeah. as, as you I mean, would think it would be. That's, it's, I, under, I understand all your arguments. You know, like I fully take them in. I think that's just a core disagreement that we have. I think... I think mostly all the noise around this is kind of a moral panic more than a social contagion. And I think that what's happening with those numbers, as you just described, my perspective on it, and I know you disagree with this, is that I just think people are feeling more comfortable to finally come out of the closet and they are actually trans in a similar trend that we saw back when we stopped being so repressive towards gay people. So, I mean, that's just Uh, like- Why is it not an equal proportion? Why is it that girls have this massive increase, but boys don't? Well, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But, you know, again, I just think the core of our disagreement is I think this is mostly a moral panic. And I I don't I agree with you that there's going to be some people who jump onto a fad again. I just don't think they're going to be the ones to jump to surgery. Adam, I know you've been trying to jump in. Go ahead. Well, no, I just I want I want to make it clear here. I think the detransition rates that Crystal cites are from like the 60s when only adults were transitioning and a much smaller number of people were transitioning. Right. So a lot of people trot out those numbers thinking that it's 
it makes a difference today when we have a bunch of children transitioning who obviously we know children go through all kinds of fads growing up so it's a completely different situation i don't think that that's good evidence i, I mean also, but it is evidence and i guess we'll it's find out evidence we have is it? but hold on in a review of 27 studies involving almost 8000 teens and adults who had transgender surgery surgeries in europe the us and canada 1% on average expressed any regret for some the re that regret was temporary but a small number did go on to have. I mean, you could what, say what like we need source? a better. We need um, like, AP I would news. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I we can we can say vast, we need better like studies. That's studies. fine. Yeah, but no, you can't like invent the results in your head of what you think is going to happen, and no, that, that's going to be better than through. what actually uh, exists. But it all comes back again well, to this core well, point. Hold up. on, should this is a this is a radical treatment, and making it without really any. Uh, confirmatory evidence for the current situation that we're in is basically flying in the dark. Look, if you're right, we will see that there will come a point where the detransition rate overtakes the number of people who continue with the treatment. But again, so, I, like, we'll be able to find out in 10, 20 years who's right. I mean, right. I think that's I basically think the best fine. thing we can come to right now. I think it's fine to <laughs> say, agree. like, I think it's right. fine to say we have some questions about we're concerned. If we, you know, our kids, we wouldn't do it. Whatever. That's fine. That's for you to decide. But Again, it's for you to decide and families to decide and doctors to decide and do your own research and come up well, with your own of, theories of, course, of the case of versus the state to enforce on doctors what they're allowed to do, even in some instances when it comes to adults. Yeah. And, and that's to me where the authoritarianism, it's fine to like read these studies <laughs> and, and have questions about, well, why have, have these ratios changed? And I don't know that I buy these detransition rates and I think this program care isn't the right one, et cetera. That's all fine. But I don't want the state to tell me, no, 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 this is what we've decided. And this is the only protocol that you're allowed and, to follow. And I will say just well, in, in, in your defense, Sitch, in particular, because you're the one who made this policy point. I do think mm -hmm. that there, if we were to poll it, I, my instinct is most Americans might fall with the like 16 and up. You can make that decision. And I just want to say, I think that's way better than the Matt Walsh's of the world who have basically said you should criminalize all this treatment for everybody. You know, sure. so, right. yeah. He, right, yeah. Matt, I mean, Matt Walsh, you know, he's obviously coming at this from his religious perspective. You know, mm -hmm. obviously, I don't agree with the religious perspective. I, you know, I learned about gender dysphoria many years ago before it was a big thing when I was taking my psych classes. And so I thought it was kind of weird when all this stuff kind of became a political issue and seeing it kind of become the culture war issue was very bizarre to me. And I'm just focused on making sure that people get the best treatment. And you have situations, I was just listening the other day, there's a very interesting interview with uh, a researcher named Michael Bailey, who was researching um, some of these topics and about uh, gender dysphoria. And because he wasn't, you know, because he was actually questioning affirmative care and doing some of these other things, you know, essentially, uh, trans activists were pressuring the journal that his article was published in to retract the article and things of that nature. And it's just, I agree that, like, theoretically, I would like for this to not be solved through legislation. I mean, I think it's generally you don't want the government to be legislating, you know, medical practices and things of that nature. You'd hope that the doctors and the researchers and scientists could come to the best conclusion. However, even though the regret the regret rates are very low and you look at the desistance rates went from being super high desistance rates to now super low desistance rates, which is incredibly troubling and never been tested, if that's not being tested, I don't know what you do because you get into the situation where like, you know, I hate to use a crude example, but you get in the situation of, you know, in the past when they were handing out lobotomies like candy and they were lobotomizing people left and right. I mean, 
we might have hoped back then that the government had done something to say, okay, okay, you can't do this without actually, you know, showing effective evidence. So I don't yeah. know, like, I mean, when you talk about, like, you prefer it not to be legislation, I agree. But if it turns out, as you said, Kyle, like 10 years from now, transfer, transfer regret rate explodes. I, mean, I don't think that'll happen, to be clear. Say, Why did we allow yeah. this to happen? Right. I'm, I don't think that'll happen. I'm saying that's what you're if saying does, will happen, right. and we'll find out if it does. Right. And uh, basically, sure. look, at the end of the day, I think that'll more or less settle the debate, right? Like among reasonable yes. people, they go, okay, well, yeah, so it either didn't happen or, or it did happen, but, you know, then you'll be able to adjust from there moving forward. Anyway, we've sure. been going for a really long time. Uh, we really appreciate you guys joining us. I think it was a fun <laughs> debate. I love diving into all this stuff. So uh, tell everybody where they can find you. Sitch, you want to go ahead? Yeah, well, we're at the uh, Sitch and Adam show on YouTube. You can check it out. So we stream every Sunday and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Eastern. Nice. And they had a great review of the Barbie movie that I highly recommend. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm surrounded by Barbie haters. I haven't seen it. Here. I'm the enlightened centrist on the issue of Barbie. Okay. I'm agnostic on it, but I have mm -hmm. some Barbie haters. Do you guys see Oppenheimer too? Not yet, no. Uh, that yeah. one, I, I really, I thought that one was well done. It is a little too long. Like there was some stuff they definitely could have trimmed up. I feel like it's always a Christopher an ego Nolan trip. movie that's too wrong. I know. That's too like, long. I can't. I can't imagine. I always feel like it's an ego trip. They're like, you know, we're you will sit through our three hours of everything we yeah, want to put on totally. the screen. But it is it is very yeah. good and very thought provoking. So I recommend. Indeed, everybody right. check out my favorite enlightened centrists, Sitch and Adam. Thanks for joining us. Nice guys. to meet this you guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. All right, there we go. That was Sitch and Adam. Um, I thought that was a fun debate. So I had done a lot of prep before mm -hmm. the show because I thought like, okay, I took the question seriously, right? Who's more authoritarian, the woke or the anti-woke? Yeah. Every example I could come up for with like woke people being authoritarian is like a comedian got canceled. A conservative speaker got kicked off of a college campus. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, a good point you made is like maybe you could look at some of the um, the censorship online for social media as some, you know, woke people going too far, whatever, banning the Hunter Biden stuff around the election. I think that's probably a good example of it. Yeah. Um, but there was also really like, woke, but yeah. they banned Antifa accounts too and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that was purely like just wokeness gone too far. Yeah. Um, but like every time I try to think of an example, another one I came up with was I covered a story recently, NYU, they had a anti-racism class for whites only. <laughs> and I thought that was hilariously ironic and also it was potentially a violation of civil rights law, which <laughs> is hilarious. Amazing. <laughs> okay. So like those were the things I could come up with for anti-woke, uh, for woke people being authoritarian. And yeah. I do think the instinct is authoritarian. It's authoritarian left. It's about controlling. They're controlling because they want to bring about what they perceive as more social justice. Um, but on the woke side, I mean, the anti-woke side, I keep mixing it up. On the anti-woke side, mm -hmm. man, the list I was able to come up with was absolutely endless. So I referenced that PEN America report on all the books being banned. It's 1,477 books in just 2022 and 2023. We're talking about Texas, the number one state, 438 bans. Florida, number two, 357. Missouri, Utah, South Carolina, these are all conservative states. Um, the Stop Woke Act with DeSantis, parts of it were slapped down as being unconstitutional because it violates the First, Am First Amendment. That is definitely authoritarian. I mean, I have an example in here, ABC News from February. They, they had pictures of Florida schools were in the classroom. They were directed to cover up their bookcases because the state needed to vet the books first to make sure the books were allowed in the classroom. I find that incredibly authoritarian. I gave you guys a list of some of the books that were totally innocuous, books on the Holocaust, books on just like race. There was one book about like a female black basketball player who made it, they, they, that was banned. Yeah. There was this one woman in Florida, I forget her name, there was a, an article, I think it was a CNN article from, from uh, about a year ago, 
where they there's this one woman in one county in Florida who was on a crusade under the Stop Woke Act, I think it was, and she got like dozens of books banned just on her own. Yeah. Right. And then you also have the uh, this was part of my research as well. At, in the wake of George Floyd, there was these Republican bills that popped up all across the country, which basically criminalized protest. Now, they did it under the guise of, hey, some of the protests turned violent. It was riots. Now, I'm anti-riot. Anybody who's reasonable doesn't want businesses being burnt down that have nothing to do with any sort of injustice right. anywhere, right? But yeah. these were absolutely overreaching bills. Here, I'll give you an example. Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. So insane. A Republican proposal in Indiana would bar anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding any state employment, including elected office. A Minnesota bill would prohibit those convicted of unlawful protesting from receiving student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance. I mean, that's crazy. What are yeah. we talking about here? And they have the number in here somewhere. They talk about uh, Ron DeSantis did a similar thing. Um, well, and disorder. the one I loved with him was he passed some anti-protest law. And then remember when there were those, like, Cuban protests? Against the like Cuban government, he's like, let him go. And yeah, and then suddenly the law was not enforced. But um, oh, let me just give you the number. Yeah, okay, yeah. so uh, Republican lawmakers in 34 states have introduced 81 anti-protest bills. Wow, that is my wild. guess is virtually all That's of them wild. are unconstitutional under the First Amendment. So when I say I'm worried about anti-woke authoritarianism, this is it. Also, right. the abortion stuff, like that stuff, concerns me because they actually, unlike Democrats, the Republicans actually do stuff. They say we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and they do it. Right. Right. And I don't agree with those things. Right. 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 Well, there were um, the number. Of, first of all, I really enjoyed that, and I think those guys are great, and I, I enjoyed the back and forth with them. I think they made some good points. One of the points they were making is, yeah, uh, the laws are like not great, but those laws only affect a small number of people, whereas the culture affects everyone. Right. Like yeah. we all have to live in this culture, and everyone's going into work, and they're all afraid. I don't want to like say the wrong thing. I'm gonna get fired. Whatever. But. I um I no longer think that it's fair to say the the right wing effort is just on the legislation front. Now they may have somewhat less cultural power, but they certainly are doing their darndest to uh, impact the culture as well and have their own culture of of cancellation too. And I think the Texas A and M thing is a perfect example. I think libs of TikTok going out and finding like whoever to cancel, et cetera. I think you know all the various freakouts about the movies that come. Oh my God, Little Mermaid is black. Oh, we can't. We got a we got a boycott. Whatever. These are all attempts to use this like authoritarian tactics with regards to the culture too. So I, I don't think that that, that piece is fair. And then the other thing that was interesting to me, confusing to me is there seemed to be an argument that was being made uh, by Adam, I think in particular that, well, the left went crazy first. And so it's kind of understandable that the right went crazy. And I don't like, think he'd say understandable. I would just think he'd say it's one thing led to the next. Well, like that led to that, but it was offered as almost like a justification. Like, well, the real culprits here are the left because they cause this reaction as if the people on the right who are doing the reaction aren't fully responsible for their own activities. And also, but like, also you go back far enough. Well, like that's the civil what I was rights movement, It's like, OK, there so who, racism was a, a backlash to the civil exactly. rights movement. You could, right? like, you could say the wokeness was a reaction. And I think that, you know, this 
has this is a reasonable interpretation was a reaction to the like insanely racist and unhinged treatment of Barack Obama. And there's, uh, you, see, yeah. you know, That's you fair. can just keep going back and well, this so you just they caused us everybody to do this, agency. and then they yeah. caused us to do this. Like everybody has no, agency. We got everybody has agency. Like everybody's responsible for their own insanity, regardless of somebody did something you didn't like and you felt a certain way about it. Like you still are responsible for your own actions. So the fact he brought that up a number of times of like, yeah, but the left did it first. And so I think it gives an opening for the right and you can understand where the right is coming. He didn't say it exactly like that. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but that part I was like a little confused by. Yeah. I mean, I understand the point he's trying to make that in the cultural zeitgeist in a certain Gamergate era during the internet, mm -hmm. you had these overreaching lefties who, you know, they would be outraged that there was a video game with a woman with big tits. Right. And right. like he's saying, well, this like, the fact that there are some psycho people on the right who went too far is a result of that. There, he's saying there's a causal connection there. But I think your point is a very solid point that you could just keep that chain going further back and further back and further yeah. back and further back. And you could always find something that led to something else. Yeah. And it's like at some point, rational, reasonable people sort of rise above it and say, I think this is BS and I think that is BS. And it's like, that's the whole point of being an enlightened centrist, right? <laughs> it's like, from their perspective, this is how they view it. It's like, we're going to try to find the truth and sort of get through all the partisan BS. And yeah, I mean, I think I thought it was a, a, a very fun debate. I think it's an interesting topic. I just think I think the biggest disconnect comes from the fact that they are more interested in culture. And I am more interested in policy. Mm. And so that's why their focus is. And I wanted to bring something up to them at the end, but I totally forgot to do it. And I had to jot it down on my notes here. But um, and I don't know, maybe they could if they watch this, maybe they could do a reaction to it on their own channel. But um, I was going to say, like, I like their content. I watch their content. I definitely think they're honest when they say that they're centrist. But I wanted to bring up to them this concept that I came up with, which is there are your nominal politics and your effective politics. Mm. And you can nominally be a centrist. Yes, my label is a centrist. Yes, if you ask me my positions, I'll run through them, and they fit into the centrist box. They and see I think themselves that's, as center-left, too, don't they? Well, I, Adam said that. I think the general interpretation for most people is that Sitch is center-left and Adam's a little more true center, maybe center-right even. Mm -hmm. Basically, Sitch is a little to the left of Adam is the general perception. But okay. if you ask them, they might both say, no, I'm center-left, I'm center-left, right? But the point I was going to make to them is, okay, those are your nominal politics. If you check off the boxes, that is where you fall. But the impact of your content, because they focus a lot on wokeness, uh, does that, I don't want to say mislead the audience, but does it leave the impression with the audience that if all you're doing is beating up on woke people all day and woke people are associated with the left, are mm -hmm. you attracting more of just a right-wing audience? Mm -hmm. That, you know, they're you're telling them what they want to hear, even if your intention is not to sort of feed into that, yeah. does it kind of feed into that? Yeah. And we've seen this, and that's not to say they're doing anything wrong. It's their show. They do whatever the hell they want to do. They could talk whatever they want to talk on whatever issues they're interested in. That's a fact, right? But I'm just curious if they're aware of that dynamic because I had to grapple with that same thing when it came to my own audience where I fed too much into the doomerism and the nihilism on the left and the dead-end approach to try to get like a third party or something in order to win an election, which is not not possible unless you totally change the laws and the structure of the country, get rid of first-past-the-post voting, do ranked-choice voting, a stupid conversation until we get to that point, right? I had to grapple with that, that I was attracting a particular kind of person who's incredibly nihilist, incredibly doomerist, thinks it's virtuous to do nothing and just throw stones at the from the sidelines at anybody who's trying to make any positive change. Yeah. And so it's like, it doesn't matter that I'm nominally like, I mean, well, I'm a lefty. I'm trying to get these policies implemented. If my actions in the world are creating people who are doomer and nihilist and have checked out of the system, I'm not doing something that's a net benefit. I'm actually creating more of a problem. 
And so you have to grapple with that as a creator is like, who am I attracting? Why am I attracting these people? And what messages are they taking away from it? Right. I think we all as content creators need to be careful to, if you truly are, hey, I'm a centrist in, in this way, okay, your content should reflect that in a way where it's more likely people who are of that variety and that flavor are in your audience and they take the message from it that you want them to take from it, not some inadvertent thing, which is not in the direction you want. Right, because you can't assume that they're seeing, you know, the insanity on the other side somewhere else, you know. You, yeah, you exactly. Ha you have to sort of assume, you know, if, if this was the only content that they were consuming, what would be their view of the world? Exactly. And so right? I, yeah, here's how I'm guilty of it. There was a very long period where I only went after Democrats and I was doing it from the left. But I thought my perspective was like, well, of course the Republicans are too far gone. Of course I disagree even more with the Republicans. Of course I think they're crazier. But I didn't talk about it that much. It was only going after the Democrats. And then you can accidentally create an environment where people, their takeaway is like, I guess maybe the Republicans are a little better. And that is not the impression I want to leave with people because it's not true. Right. And so I had to like reevaluate and go, I got to get my priorities better. And I got to be more honest with what my politics actually are in terms of what I'm talking about and what I'm covering and how I'm covering it. You know what I mean? And that's a very, it's an important thing that I think is overlooked by a lot of content creators where they don't realize you can have your nominal politics, but what are your effective politics? What are you creating more in the world of? Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a great point. So anyway, all right, that was fun. Everybody go check out their show, uh, Adam and Sitch Show, or Sitch and Adam Show. They hate it when you flip it. Really? Adam loves it, Sitch hates it because he wants to be the first one. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for watching Kyle, Crystal, and Friends. We really, <laughs> we really appreciate it. Uh, everybody do us a big favor. If you like what you saw here, you can um, sign up on Substack. The link is always in the video description box below. If you pay $5 a month, you get the video of every single interview slash debate, and you get it a day early. Everybody else, if they sign up for free on Substack, they can get the audio version of the podcast and they get it a day later. And remember, we don't talk to any advertisers or anything for this show. So it's fully dependent upon you wonderful people to help us out. Um, and that's all we got. We love you. We'll talk to you later. Peace. <laughs>